a matter of fact, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel, and our guest today, the intrepid Becca Rothfeld, a contributing editor to the Point and Boston Review. She is now working on a book for Cult, about which uh, we will say no more, but uh, you should read it, whatever it is, whenever it comes out, because uh, Becca is one of a kind. And with her, we will be discussing Shulamith Firestone's 1970 book, The Dialectic of Sex, uh, particularly the final chapter of that book, which is the most manifesto-ish of all the chapters. And that is, uh, what is that one called? The Ultimate Revolution? Do I have that right? Something like that. And Something like that. And that will be paired with an excerpt from Sheila Hetty's novel Motherhood called The Longing for a Holy Completeness. And uh, I, I think it's fair to say this is our second official second wave feminism in review. Uh, Rad Femme in review installment following our... Um, well, it's like Rad Femme paired with the contemporary um, sort of fifth wave refracted rad femme in fiction last time it was cat person with dworkin and solanus and this time it is sheila hetty with uh shulamith firestone becca these were your choices the first time jake it didn't work we had to do it again because uh right before we started this podcast there was a there was a screaming toddler Right, right. <laughs> we see we see yeah. Jake cross the screen, holding a screaming toddler, uh, who I believe you then uh, handed off to your wife, right? Uh, so, yeah, so that you I could record your podcast. Us. So, you are the problem, uh, which we need to to diagnose and correct. Yeah, in more ways well, than one. I have never, I've never wanted uh, to be more. Like distant, I've never wanted to repudiate bourgeois family life more than at the moment when I realize I'm handing off my screaming son so I can record a podcast or something <laughs> deeply unjust about this whole situation. But, uh, yeah. Well, her podcast but, 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 will come. Yeah. Right. So, Becca, why did you want Becca, to do these two works? Yeah, why these? I mean, I was just thinking about motherhood as one does. And I mean, we talked about like various different like possibilities. So it's not that I'm like wedded to these two texts in like particular. I mean, I did like Sheila Hetty's novel. I don't think the excerpt does like the novel justice really. Um, But I'm just increasingly interested in the question of motherhood and, uh, you know, should it be vulturally compulsorily compulsory obviously not i think but i think that there's a social pressures in that direction building up like is it a good idea like why should one do it or not do it i've been looking for answers to these questions as i am of child bearing age um and i've not found many good ones i'm not sure that 
these are good ones, but they are answers. <laughs> well, I remember that you, um, I think we'd had an initial discussion because we wanted to have you come on for a while and could have done a whole range of things, but you had written a uh, critique of a Helen Andrews piece um, and more sort of like a, a kind of genre of piece that seems to be growing up, particularly on the right, which is like um, smoothly transitions from critiquing like neoliberal sort of like girl boss corporate fandom to suggesting that women will only be fulfilled if they have babies and um, and if they don't work, like the right, suggestion they being that and, like, and they having have babies, babies is more fulfilling than work, or there's some kind of competition between having babies and working. Um, hold on, my dog is like eating paint. Stop it. Right. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, isn't there some competition between having babies and working? Aren't those things uh, not only structurally in competition to some extent, which is not to say that they're mutually exclusive, but that they make competing claims I mean, I, that's sort of central to the argument of both feminists and reactionaries, isn't it? Well, I mean, one, I think some people would say that having children just is in itself work. I mean, that's like Firestone's argument is that like reproductive yeah. labor like is labor. I'm not sure that I think that that's true, but I can like see the argument for that. Um, but I also think it like depends on... Women Nature were the slave class that maintained the species in order to free the other half for the business of the world. Admittedly, often it's drudge aspects, but certainly all of its creative aspects as well. So, I mean, I think that if you consider what I do uh, for a living, what I'm paid to do as work, you know, that's reading, writing, thinking, philosophizing about things. I'm very lucky. Most people are not in my position. Um, if I were to have a child, I certainly would not stop doing that like at any time I, I consider right. that like more of a vocation or a calling to be like cheesy and ridiculous about it than like work I would do it like even if I weren't compensated for it so I mean the argument in my piece was that the problem is that people have to do work that they don't like um right. rather than what Helen yeah the, the, the thing that I liked about it was that it it, it um those critiques suggest a sort of limited range of things that are actually fulfilling. And then you pointed out that where the critique against work and a kind of particularly extremely aggressive sort of like lean in model where you're supposed to devote the entirety of your soul to work, that perhaps the critique should, should go towards the economic structure and the ideas that we have around you know, sort of how we should organize our lives and, and, and work lives rather than um, sort of pit these two things against each other so simply. And so we talked about that. And then we wanted to do something, uh, you know, in that, in that realm. And you had suggested the Shulamith Firestone, which, by the way, is such a great author name, especially for somebody as radical as her. Like, if your name is Shulamith Firestone, you're not going to pen, mm. like, you know calm, reasonable, centrist op-eds for, you know, the New York Times opinion page. Like, you know, you're going to write... Firestone right. a good name. The, the comedy <laughs> interesting that, The dialectic of sex. I hear Shulamith Firestone and I think it, like, it sounds like uh, an Orthodox Jewish woman, you know, so mm -hmm. I don't... 
Shulamith is a traditional Jewish name, so I don't. Yeah. Firestone. Shulamith less so than Firestone. I think of the Salon poem when I hear Shulamith, the the famous Mm. like poem about the Holocaust. But Firestone, I think of like witches or something. (laughs) No, it's great. Maybe appropriately, maybe that's a sexist association. Yeah, my, I was my, my say, copy says yes. the human alternative to 1984, a slashing attack on male supremacy that charts the end of the sexual class system. <laughs> Chapter six might change your life. Um, I found. OK, so I found <laughs> that. <laughs> chapter six is the chapter on love. Yeah, it did yeah, not change. Like, I found the stuff about the, uh, 1984. So, all right. So broadly speaking, the dialectic of sex is Firestone's. Uh, sort of seminal, seminal is the, let me say, you can't say a seminal radfem text. What's the like uterine, uh, generative uterine radfem text in which she lays out an argument for both the basis of the enslavement of women as a biological class and the terms for the emancipation of women which is also the emancipation of society, which is essentially a way of taking the Marxian revolution, uh, you know, sort of Leninist uh, revolutionary, socialist revolutionary precepts, which had not gone far enough in Russia because they were hampered by regressive sex roles and a lack of theory, uh, as she points out, and updates the... Leninist social socialist revolutionary model with a complete emancipation of not only the sexes, but uh, also a, a complete emancipation of the sexes that entails the destruction of the family and its replacement by what she calls the household. And this is, in short, the utopian vision of the book. And yeah. one of the elements of this, and we're going to focus here on the last chapter, but one of the elements of this that I found most original, and I loved it, by the way, I was like thrilled that you chose this. I, I loved it. It's such a manifesto. You know, yeah. it's like, this is what like, sometimes <laughs> we we pick these texts that are like, too subtle. or like, Measured, you know, that, calm. This is not, not that. <laughs> The farthest, the farthest thing. She she bites every bullet she can find. You know, she's just like, yeah, give it. You know, like she goes through more rounds than Rambo. Like it's crazy. She bites the bullets and she handles it. You know, I mean, stylishly, look at it. stylishly, and like with a plum. You know yeah. what I mean? Like she doesn't. There, it's not. There's no like equivocating. Yeah. There's no to be sure's but. She's just like, no, 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 we'll destroy the family. And here's how we'll destroy the family. And then cybernetic socialism. And yeah, okay, maybe this won't happen exactly how I'm describing. But nevertheless, clearly, like, this is what's required. And I just found the parts where she contrasts her vision or or points to 1984 as this sort of projection of masculine, uh, like, psychic... Uh, energy into dystopia as a like a masculine project I actually found to be one of the more interesting parts of that I thought it was very it was a shrewd 
a very like smart way of kind of preempting the hey this sounds sort of totalitarian what you're describing here but she has like a smart gender critique of that argument that she launches preemptively but uh was that a fair description of what the project um entails would you say I think we should also mention that she wants to abolish like the child class. I mean, the part of the book that I found like the least plausible and the most dated, um, well, A, is all the Freudian stuff. There's a lot of Freud Mm -hmm. in the book, which I feel like we can kind of like leave out of our conversation because it says scholastic. I like don't even know what she's talking about most of the time. But also she wants to abolish like the child class. She thinks that children, it's like it's an artificial category. I mean, I buy maybe that we treat children differently now or something, but that children are oppressed along similar lines as women and that we need to abolish both uh, oppressed classes. That's like the ultimate goal. Yeah, including uh, their sexual Wait, that's not going quite far enough though, right? Like it's explicitly should have have full sexual rights. There should be no sexual differentiation between adults and children because the sexual differentiation between adults and children is a product of the biological family. And so, and this is something she shares with like, you know, uh, this shows up in a number of um, uh, rad femme texts. You know, there's like so the, the, the uh, oh my God, what's her name? The, uh, the classic, um, the defensive uh, man boy love. Uh, um, uh, the, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, the Nambla guy. Oh, sorry. My no, 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 not now. the guy. It, yeah, it's, anyway, Judith Butler also has some like fairly pro pedophilic arguments in some of her stuff. It's, it you is not like, Foucault, like tending in this direction as well. Totally. Totally. Foucault yeah. is all about this stuff. And she's also against the incest taboo. Like she mentions that too. Right. I feel like, yeah. I mean, a charitable reading would kind of just like leave that part out because I feel like some of the stuff she says about women is quite plausible, but the stuff she says about children and the incest taboo, I was like, mm, but don't you know, know about that. When, when you uh, <laughs> when you were reading this, you 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 texted me something like, "This is like twenty percent. It was like thirty percent genius, thirty um, percent outdated, uh, you know, like thirty percent crazy, and then some other percentage something else." But like. Those are kind of my favorite kind of texts, right? Yeah, I mean, the craziness of it, like, makes it, like, thrilling and exciting. Right? He's, like, growling at me because he wants me to pay attention. To and him. it's also fun. I mean, just Sorry. from the beginning, right? So, chill. Yeah, like, you know, we were talking about how, um, you know, for her, it's, like, Marx doesn't go far enough. Like, yeah, yeah, material conditions, you're talking about, like, economic class and whatever. But, like, let's bring it down to like biology, right? Like one half of the species has to bear and rear the children, right? Um, and she thinks that we can move beyond that because a certain level of technological sophistication has been reached, right? So until a certain level of evolution has been reached and technology had achieved its present sophistication, to question fundamental biological conditions was insanity. Why should a woman give up her precious seat in the cattle car for a bloody struggle she could not hope to win? But for the first time in some countries, the preconditions for feminist revolution exist. Indeed, the situation is beginning to demand such a revolution. The first women are fleeing the massacre and shaking and tottering are beginning to find each other. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and, it's interesting that she focuses on the natural or biological element because the talk that most like radical feminists take is by focusing on the parts of gender that they believe are socially constructed. So like Sylvia mm-hmm. Federici, the wages for housework yeah. uh, lady, like focuses on the social construction of gender and the point of demanding wages for housework is to denaturalize it, to demonstrate that women performing the preponderance of housework is not a natural arrangement. So I mean, another bold and polemical is that she leans into the physical aspect of the question, which is not what a lot of people in this tradition do. Right, right. No, that's the, that's the, in some ways, I mean, it, it makes it, I think, um, it, it leads it into its most excessive positions because she has to follow that anti-nature uh, it's like not just anti-Rousseauian in the sense of like ah, there we should we should embrace technological improvements over uh, you know there's not some idyllic past to return to which is the kind of obvious part. No, it's it's really stridently anti-biology, and she is serious about that. And uh, the other big feminist thinker at the time who comes to mind in terms like the everything is culture argument was Alice Rossi, who wrote a whole book about how, you know, uh, gender was purely socially constructed. She later actually, I think after having children, um, reversed her position on this, wrote something about her experience as a mother, and then was sort of written out of the feminist movement because she said, no, it's not purely uh, socially constructed. And that, that um, didn't end well for her, but that was a very prominent argument but the argument that firestone is making is biology has created these sexual class categories and so it's not enough simply to reprogram cultural mores uh, or enact a new ideological superstructure because what the only way to truly emancipate ourselves is to take command of this biology, artificially inseminate men, you know, um, among other things. Just artificial wounds, maybe. Artificial like, wounds, yeah. Some combination which, of those things. Which, by the way, like I mean, like we 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 laugh at the idea of artificial wombs, but then this is something, you know, when I was talking to my wife about this, she was like, Oh, did you see the Jamie Chung thing? Do you know who that is? No. Jamie Chung is an actress. She's sort of like, um, she's like a sort of B list actress. So she's like, you know, working and getting roles. Um, and, but you know, she's sort of on the grind and, and, uh, at a decent point in her career, her and her husband wanted to have kids. So they had, they had a surrogate, right? And she she said, I was terrified of becoming pregnant. I was terrified of putting my life on hold for two plus years in my industry. It feels like you're easily forgotten if you don't work within the next month of your last jobs. Things are so quickly paced in what we do. Probably People probably think, oh, she's so vain. She didn't want to get pregnant. And it's much more complicated than that. For me personally, and I will leave it at this, it's like I worked my ass off my entire life to get where I am. I don't want to lose opportunities. I don't want to be resentful. And so... You know. I mean, fair enough. There's also people investing in artificial wombs. Like the guy, I can't say his name, the founder of Ethereum, the cryptocurrency. Like I his, I think his, pet, I think I'm not making this up. I think I'm not making this up. I think his pet project is like investing in like mm-hmm. artificial womb development technology. Right. Um, 
I mean, which is already that... partially developed for animals. So that's, you know, Phil, what you're talking about with surrogates is like still it's displacing it from rich women to yes. poorer women, but yeah. it's all women still. Yes. Whereas I think the Ethereum guy and like the cutting edge of this is like, no, it's truly has no biological Relation. sexual. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the surrogate thing, I think, is even worse. It's like creating like a real like slave class, like to an even greater degree, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not to a greater degree, but it's it's just like reinforcing that there is like a separate slave class. I feel like it doesn't satisfy. I think there are definitely eth eth ethical complications there, right? Um, well, but I'm it's, not it's, sure that I endorse that it's a slave class, but I think Firestone would say that. Firestone would probably say that. Yeah, right. Um but it's like, I think Firestone would say that anything that reproduces the social relations in which pregnancy and child rearing is exclusively female is regressive and reactionary. And until you emancipate women from the biological connection, you know, she has this notion, right? That And this is where it gets interesting. Like, this is what I found interesting and you see like this super cartoonish schizo version of this in Solanus, but her idea is you have to diffuse the feminine role is not going like the things that are traditionally associated with women now, like the pregnancy and child rearing function insofar as they can't be made to go away altogether. The point is to spread them out throughout the rest of the society. Like, redistribute them, you know, in a, in a kind of, um, I don't know if egalitarian is the right word, in a leveling way, so that you don't simply remove the characteristics of women and leave the world as a exclusively uh, male-dominated subject, but like you take those characteristics that are exclusive to women now and you spread them around, and technology is the means by which that becomes possible for the first time in human history. Yeah, which is like kind of an argument that appeals to me. I mean, I do think that like the abolition of gender is the sensible end goal of like the kind of feminism that I endorse. Like, I do, I think that gender roles. I think that people often think that the problem is just thinking that women are worse at various sorts of things. But I think the problem is also just like essentialism of any kind that like one is expected to perform a certain role, like merely by virtue of accidents of one's biology. And so even if I don't endorse like the letter of all of Firestone's proposals, the spirit of the proposals is appealing to me. And I think it does address like many of the concerns that I would have in like having a child. Perhaps I, I will have a child. Like there aren't artificial wombs and I'm not entirely compelled by the idea that like childhood is invented. And I certainly believe in the incest taboo. So that's not really <laughs> your children listeners. Um, but I do think that she addresses uh, many of the concerns that I have about that. I mean, because it is silly. Maybe, maybe it's silly, but some of the concerns are physical. Like it is, it seems like a harrowing and like sort of terrifying physical ordeal. The there's a line in the book about how it's like shitting a pumpkin, I believe oft quoted. And I mean, of course I can't speak to whether that's true or not, but it seems possible and kind of horrifying. The, um, I mean, I, I, I have seen it happen three times. Um, <laughs> 
and at n no point have I wanted to trade places with my wife. Um, though I don't think she would describe it in, in the ways that Shulamith Firestone has. Um, I mean, on the one hand, the sort of like visceral physicality of it appeals to me in sort of the same manner as like the opulence of like body horror. Like it does yeah. seem like a, a Cronenbergian, like a David Cronenbergian like invention, like something that would be in kind of like a, a horror movie, like a very visceral horror movie. And that appeals to me, actually. Somebody of that seems kind of appealing. There's also <laughs> women who um, have a very different relationship to it. I mean, this is like the whole like home birth movement and um which she know. discusses like she has yeah. like some, a, mm -hmm. a, a, a scathing passage about that yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. she's not a fan no um and you know there 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 are women who would who would stridently reject the the horror <laughs> horror movie aspect of it but i think the, the the thing that she's very clearly right about is if if full equality sort of freedom uh, in terms of freedom is the goal. There's just a simple biological fact that like women are subjected to nine months of pregnancy. And then, you know, usually, uh, you know, there's sort of some early childbearing things that like only the woman can do. Right. Um, and that's just a biological yeah. fact. And then, you know, what, where do you move from there? How do how, you know? How, and 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 what kind of consequences does that have if there is this major biological fact? I mean, you know, my uh, my grandmother had six daughters. Like, that's a large portion of just her life that she spent pregnant, right? Um, and that's you know, you can change cultural mores. But there's just certain like basic realities that are going to be going to exist, and and Shulamith is is obviously very concerned with with what happens if you don't deal with that. And so for her, the thing that you need to do is essentially like extract the the biology, I guess. I mean, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to that because I think that the physical intensity of pregnancy is one of the things that terrifies me most about it. On the other hand, I'm not sure that she's right about the necessary social and political concomitants of women being like primary biological bearers of children. Right. Like I think that she assumes that the hierarchy of the family structure follows necessarily and she doesn't give like great arguments for why that should be so. Like I mean, it, it unlike, does seem to me unlike Jake. Unlike Jake who just passed his sick child off to his wife. Um, you know, Where I your was, children fell? I was taking, I, I was taking my children to the doctor yesterday. You know, I dropped them off at school, picked them up and took them to the doctor, you know, which is, uh, uh, yeah, he did all that by zoom, but he's talking, he's in a, an Alpine villa right now, yeah. eating peeled grapes, talking about this. Mm. No, I, I listen, I, um, no, but like the family I structure has, has, that the, can, can be I very think much that changed. the yeah. argument for redistributing the uh, redistributing the excessive burdens on women to men is a strong uh, redistributing the excessive burdens on women that are a function yeah. of biology redistributing those to men represents in in ways that 
Firestone wouldn't want to see it, but that are sort of synchronous with her argument are both a technological phenomenon and a form of social progress. So the ways in which women are no longer forced to choose so severely between uh, having children and and having a career and the ways in which men participate in child rearing are both, in my opinion, you know, like launched by technological phenomenon, not by political movements principally, and are also, I think, very real substantive forms of social progress, even if she would consider what I'm calling social progress, like, you know, just liberal reformism or whatever. But that being said, this is progress for men, too. And, and, you know, it's progress for everybody. But that being said, the, the idea that you're going to eliminate gender altogether, don't you worry that like, when you run so far away from essentialism, you run away from essence at some point. Isn't there a, isn't there a risk in like losing, in, in just like falling into a kind of endlessly contingent existence where you can easily jump from "I don't want to be a slave to childbirth" to children should be fully emancipated sexual agents and like, it's okay to fuck kids. <laughs> not that anyone in this conversation is going there, but that did not That's seem absurd to her. Right. right yeah. Yeah. But that's, uh, that did not seem absurd to her. That seemed like a logical extension of the arguments. And I'm, I'm not convinced you can just write that off as, you know, just like a weird, weird. 1970s thing or something like that. I, I think that, philosophically these are related arguments can, can, can i read something from dh lawrence very quickly the yes always. okay <clears throat> we have a curious idea of ourselves we think of ourselves as a body with a spirit in it or a body with a soul in it or a body with a mind in it mensan in corpore sano the years drink up the wine and at last throw the bottle away the body of course being the bottle It is a funny sort of superstition. Why should I look at my hand as it so cleverly writes these words and decide that it is a mere nothing compared to the mind that directs it? Is there really any huge difference between my hand and my brain or my mind? My hand is alive. It flickers with a life of its own. It meets all the strange universe in touch and learns a vast number of things and knows a vast number of things. My hand, as it writes these words, Words, slips gaily along, jumps like a grasshopper to dot an eye, feels the table rather cold, gets a little bored if I write too long, has its own rudiments of thought, and is just as much me as is my brain, my mind, or my soul. Why should I imagine that there is a me which is more me than my hand is, since my hand is absolutely alive, me, alive? Um, uh, And he says, (coughs) sort of jumping down, he says, that's what you learn when you're a novelist, and that's what you are very liable not to know if you're a parson or a philosopher or a scientist or a stupid person. If you're a parson, you talk about souls in heaven. If you're a novelist, you know that paradise is in the palm of your hand and on the end of your nose because both are alive. Um, and D.H. Lawrence, who's not always beloved by feminists, uh, for various reasons, um, is very concerned with um, (laughs) 
with not sort of severing severing ourselves from from our physical animal nature, right? And this is, I think, and and Firestone, I think, anticipates this sort of objection because she's always insisting that if we if we get to this stage, we're going to reach the truly natural, right? Um, and and it's also, I think, part of her. You know, she has these like bits of sometimes like dubious historical analysis. Um, I think very dubious. I think yeah. almost none. I mean, she does the big broad strokes, like from the beginning of civilization, like kind of history, like right, often. and like you know, Chilpans mythology. I think, like she says about Freud at some point, she has some very good summary where she's like, Freud is better read as poetry or mythology than science, and that's kind of like how I read her. Yeah, she, at uh, one point she's like, children's toys didn't exist until sixteen hundred, and I was like. It's like that's like absolutely false. It's like a royal yeah, painting called idle, children's games, you know. That like, anyway, it's not just idle kind of like trivia or anecdotes like that. The arguments that she's making are directly rooted in what seems to be a total unconditional acceptance of like the population bomb uh, kind of mythology that's very popular at this time, which is you know these these ecological alarmist warnings that the earth is on the brink of the four to five, you know, what is it? How many, like, it's like 4 billion people are going to die in the next 20 years. And uh, the population bomb book by Paul Ehrlich, which she cites, which is just wrong on every page gets everything yeah, I feel wrong. Like that's such a red herring for her because like, I mean, the arguments that she makes about like the oppressiveness of the gender division of labor are like much more plausible and also sufficiently yeah. powerful to make right. the case for at least distributing the burdens yeah. that attach to women because of their biology. She doesn't need to also appeal to like the specter of overpopulation. Right. Um, and, and, and this is, this is the question is like where, you know, what is what is the relationship to what's what's natural? And this is like this sort of recurring thing. You'll see it in like like the kind of like men's rights forum or like the hard right kind of like yeah, like the dudes who only eat like liver or whatever. Yeah, like, fetishization of but, like you know like there's hierarchy in nature <laughs> and and you know our ancestors, the mountain croats, like only ate yeah, mammoths. So like that's yeah. what I should do to get tall. It's like you guys are <laughs> losers. Um, uh. Gotta eat vegetables, so right? So, and and and, and also the the kind of like there's the sort of the, the aspect of like the home birth movement that 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 Firestone is aware of and dislikes, right? Which is very much about like leaning into the biology and and not purely seeing it as like Eve's curse, right? Um, which he references as well, um, but rather finding sort of value in it and and you know there's that sort of question of like how um how attached do we want to be to our to our biology how much of us you know and how how far can we go from it while still sort of you know <laughs> retaining the things that we value about being human right um which is why it's like she right, wants I've to transcend it. biology but insists that it's still like the true the truly natural is where she's going to okay so i feel i've written down i think like we've raised sort of like three uh not exactly objections, but like suspicions of her. The first is that there there might be like too much erosion of roles and if there's like too much erosion of like any sort of role 
then maybe we'll end up being pedophiles. The second is that maybe she sort of eliminates physicality. And then like third, and I think separately, like there's a rejection of like nature. Mm-hmm. So I think that the question of like being detached from physicality and the question of being detached from nature come apart because I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that um, we shouldn't be beholden to our nature or maybe that uh, it is the natural condition of humans to like always be evolving technology to mm-hmm. change their relationship to the physical environment. I mean, I think that that just is, that is a fact of history, whether or not like children yeah. had toys. But I, I am very suspicious of these arguments that because something is natural, uh, yeah. it's better. I mean, I think that that right. is a, is a fallacy and further I'm suspicious of the argument that it's not in some meta sense natural for people to be developing technologies that change their material conditions of existence. But I don't think that, rejecting uh the constraints of quote unquote nature entails like a rejection of physicality like it could be the case that women no longer go i mean she does actually say that basically we'll all be in like insane sensuous polycules because like our sexuality will be like totally liberated when women don't have to give birth i mean i don't i don't know that i think that that follows either but even if it were the case that you were to intervene can i give a quote from her that i like Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this is this is from uh, the chapter on romance. This is um, uh, when she's talking about like uh, I want to add a note about the special difficulties of attacking the sex class system through its means of cultural indoc- indoctrination. Sex objects are beautiful. An attack on them can be confused with an attack on beauty itself. Feminists need not get so pious in their efforts that they feel they must flatly deny the beauty on the face of the cover of Vogue. For this is not the point. The real question is, is the face beautiful in a human way? Does it allow for growth and flux and decay? Does it express negative as well as positive emotions? Does it fall apart without artificial props? Or does it falsely imitate the very different beauty of an inanimate object like wood trying to be metal? To attack eroticism creates similar problems. Eroticism is exciting. No one wants to get rid of it. Life would be a drab and routine affair without at least that spark. That's just the point. Why has all joy and excitement been concentrated, driven into one narrow, difficult-to-find alley of human experience and all the rest laid waste? When we demand the elimination of eroticism, we mean not the elimination of sexual joy and excitement, but its rediffusion over. There's plenty to go around. It increases with use the spectrum of our lives. So, Becca, you were saying to address the those three objections and then your points about the relationship between um, human well-being, human welfare, and the natural world. So you brought up why why does why does Firestone need to rely on these kind of ecological uh, catastrophe arguments when her case for the redistribution of uh, gendered burdens is strong enough on its own? I think the reason why is because she needs a totalizing argument because she's making grand utopian claims and she wants the wholesale the wholesale transformation of society along lines that pointedly defy any connection to the natural order the natural order referring both to like you know individual biological imperatives and let's say species-wide imperatives because extending the principle that the natural is not good to its utopian conclusion, the only way to kind of, you know, achieve the the truly just and revolutionary society 
is to destroy it all wholesale and, and create something new in its place, which is why it's not enough to say, like, we should have better forms of the family or we should redistribute some of these burdens um, while perhaps acknowledging that not everybody wants to see them. Like maybe there are women in the world who don't want to lose their capacity to give birth to children because for them it represents something worthwhile, even if also burdensome and grotesque. Like it is an inherently totalizing vision in that way. And the the and that is the format in which the eradication of like child adult sexual boundaries makes sense i think it's it's not just like an eccentricity in my opinion it's of a piece with the totalizing aspect and the total totally denaturalizing aspect because to respect the boundaries or or acknowledge the boundaries to use a less you know normative moral term moralistic term, just to acknowledge the boundaries would be to acknowledge that there is some biological hierarchical relationship that structures, uh, you know, and that is sort of proto-familial in its characteristics, right? All, like, none of which is to say there is any moral obligation to accept the natural world in toto as what is good and to, and to like, bow down in some kind of crude and fetishistic way to what is natural you know it's like the, the people who buy this liver stuff this i watch this guy liver king sometimes on youtube i actually I'm also watch liver stupid, king you know? <laughs> i'm that stupid Cats need to know liver king says why why would you eat a vegetable when you can eat a testicle and the I greatest mean, looks- thing about liver king is he looks like a cartoon he's the he least exactly like description of like the woman made of wood like he's like the male version he's preposterous there's nothing like authentically like he has no authentic masculine charisma he's like a ridiculous like you know he i I don't know yeah yeah you could totally see him like selling cryptocurrency or whatever you know what i mean he's just like a sort of classic like american huckster who's like oh i'll be like i'll be the the natural liver guy, you know, <laughs> like whatever that you order online, your natural liver. So, so, but it seems to me that finally, like the artist's position or the individualistic position loses its nobility once it attempts to like efface all, uh, I don't know if hierarchy is the right word, it loses its nobility once it attempts to efface all limitation, all difference and all limitation. And like what makes rebellion noble and admirable is precisely that it confronts the unavoidable, inevitable limitation that being a human inside a body with a finite amount of time places in front of you. And that the kind of effort to will that out of existence through political programs or or whatever else has as a consequence, like the total destruction of artistic 
and individualistic, the nobility of the artistic and individualistic rebellion. Okay. I have many thoughts about this. So <laughs> first is like rather deflating. I'm trapped in the in the body of someone with the brain of an analytic philosopher. We didn't include in our introduction that I'm like ostensibly getting a PhD in philosophy. Um and so I just, when I read a book like this, I sort of read it in like two modes. One is kind of like as poetry and mythology. And then the other mode is like, if I were assessing this, like as a piece of philosophy, what would I say? And I guess I do think that she just, she says like a huge mess of things that I would describe in my analytic philosophical boring person mode is just logically independent from one another. So, I mean, unbraiding uh, what she has braided together is probably too complicated to do here, but I actually just don't think that it's true that like her program stands or falls sort of all together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I think that she could make maybe not quite as radical arguments as she does, but I, I do think that like the arguments that she makes about the oppressiveness of the gender division of labor um, and its relegation of women to sort of like subhumanity or whatever, if you take that seriously, like that does seem to me to be like a sufficient argument for definitely not for pedophilia. I don't really understand. There, I don't think there is a logical relationship between what she says about women and what she says about children. But that does seem to me to be a sufficient argument, even independent of some of the crazier shit she says, for at least radically reimagining yeah. like how people live in, have, have, together. Have, have any of you yeah. read The Immortal King Rao by Vahini Vara? Uh, it's really good. And it's actually sort of perfect for this because in terms of like cybernetic socialism, it's like it spits, splits between... Like the life of this uh, guy born um, to a Dalit class in like uh, a small village in India on like a coconut grove who moves to America and essentially becomes Steve Jobs. And then like it goes to the future where it's being told from his daughter who in the future like governments had, had gradually like sold off portions of government services to like big tech companies to run until essentially like the national state become a sort of withered thing and you have like shareholder government is what's running the well, world. Like the cryptocurrency it's yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's, it's, you know, and it's, it's, um, and so kind of big tech runs the world and then these like islands. Yeah, where so pe- the near future in other words. Exactly. Yeah. And they're like islands where they're like a few, like people who, uh, who opt out uh, that they live on. And, but there's a scene in, in the book, it, it's like, the book is actually really extremely relevant to, to this discussion. There's a scene in the book where these families, this one family uh, and sort of like an extended family, it's kind of, you know, household. They all live on this grove and they all uh, farm the coconuts and share the profits. And then as sort of like capitalism advances, the, the head of the household just like puts up a proposal where people, all the families are going to get income distributed according to you know, they're, they're how much they work on the farm and like how much they actually produce. And the men all vote for this. All of the men sort of like imagining in their own mind, even if they're the laziest guy on the farm, that they're, they're actually the most valuable worker. And then all of the women are furious because there's different number of men in each household. And also like none of their work, right? The household stuff, caring for kids, laundry, cooking, like none of the women's work is included in this metric, right? Mm. And it's like this, um, and the the shift to like a fairer, rational, capitalistic system sort of starts to like break down the family structure, right? Um, uh, that it existed prior. And one of the things 
that she's very good on. And you would actually text me. We're talking about like the the raw egg nationalist bro science mediating dudes slash like red light ball tanners. Um, I don't I don't understand. If anybody doesn't know that's what that natural. is, that's how that's how we were, you know, in the in the in the caveman we were tanning their balls. Yeah, Tucker Carlson had this whole thing about like how you have to put red light on your testicles for some reason. Did you see this, Jake? Um, no, he was advocating that. You didn't see he this? interviewed what he called bro scientists and oh. his like documentary about masculinity. I know who the oh yeah, I didn't see the documentary. Yeah, no, Tucker they're, Carlson they're... was advocating this. And then he he tried to they're like advocating red light on the on the test. He wasn't like exactly advocating, but he was like, look, yeah. mainstream science is suspect, so we have to ask the bro scientists, like, this is what they're saying. Like, right. I don't know. And their so argument you... their argument is what? That it uh I, you know, I'm sad to say that I didn't actually up. listen to their argument enough to know it, so maybe they've got a great argument. And they didn't well, I'm just they I'm curious what the claim is that it increases sperm count or it increases sperm count, but there's not like a mechanism identified. They're kind of just like I did it. And I felt better. Yeah. Um, gotcha, he asked. Gotcha. He, he sort of <laughs> suggested this to Kid Rock, and Kid Rock was like, "No." Ah, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so our Dude, our cameraman, I Scott Fox, is in your house right now. He is. Dude, stop. Testicle tanning. Come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. I haven't heard anything open, that good. Open your, open I'm your starting, mind, Bobby. I'm, I'm starting a punk rock band and it's called Testicle Tanning. That's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be massively successful. But I mean, don't you think at this point, when so many of the therapies, the paths they've told us to take, have turned out to be dead ends that have really hurt people, why wouldn't open-minded people seek new solutions. I, I don't know what the hell is going on in this world. I'm not even sure if I understood that question, but some days I just want to stop this planet and let me off. Like, But anyway, uh, uh, so <laughs> Firestone... Voice of reason. Yeah. Uh, writes, uh, Romanticism develops in proportion to the liberation of women from their biology. As civilization advances and the biological bases of sex class crumble, male supremacy must shore itself up with artificial institutions or exaggerations of previous institutions, e.g. where previously the family had a loose, permeable structure, it now tightens and rig rigides into the patriarchal nuclear family. And Yeah, um, I think... This is yep. so true. And the history bears this out. I mean, like I've recently read like a few histories of dating in preparation for my book. One of the essays is about sort of yeah. like the history of dating. And it is, it's, it's with the beginning of the dissolution of the traditional nuclear family that like the social sciences are basically invented. Like sociology originally is basically just people kind of like finding justifications for the preservation of like desperate, increasingly desperate justifications for like the organization of the traditional nuclear family, which is very much like a historically contingent phenomenon. Obviously, like familial ties of one form or another are not. And I do think that like children being treated differently are not. But I think that is. I mean, I wanted to say something about this, uh, the very eloquent and like sort of poetic things that you said about nature, Jake, that I responded to by being like, well, I'm an analytic philosopher and that stuff is logical. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the sort of more inspiring response would be something like, I do strongly believe in something like human nature. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if you go back to older philosophy, there's a, now we think when we hear the word nature, we think of it 
as meaning physical or biological. But I mean, I think of it as like spiritual, like human human nature has to do with like fundamental, like necessary, like human capacities. Uh, and whether those turn out to be physical, I think is sort of like an open question. So I think that we are limited by uh, the constraints of human nature, but that those constraints needn't map like perfectly onto or have like much of a relationship with like physical constraints. So, you know, like some philosophers would say that humans are necessarily like rational animals. I, I don't agree with this conception of like what the human essence is and like this is a constraint. But I mean, I like actually early Marx's notion of people. He calls it like species being where he thinks at least one of the necessary human capacities is that we... Uh, don't exercise like total mastery over the physical world, but we sort of externalize our spiritual reality in the physical world, which is like an idea that he takes from Hegel that I find like very powerful. And so thinking of sort of like body modification and like physical modification under this metric uh, in sort of like existentialist Hegelian terms about the objectification of inner life, I think that that there's still constraints on us because it's still our nature that, that like we do that. And there could be sort of sub roles within that. But I don't think that entails that there be like gender roles, like specifically. I think that's what I would say. Wait a minute. I, hold on. I'm fascinated, but so the, the, so the, the, but what would the bio, how would the biological component of the human being interact with their um, self understanding as a taking the Marxian rather than like the Hegelian tack for a minute? Like, map to their understanding of themselves as a material agent operating in a whatever phenomenological world like so in other words okay accepting that it's not some perfect one for one correlation and that all of this is sort of mediated and interpreted through cultural and uh, other mediating aspects of existence what is the role for the um let us say like the most fundamental biological because it's not just birth giving it's also death is part of this too and it, it seems to me that the idea like i take the firestone argument as a kind of also a proto transhumanist argument um and you know she calls it cybernetic socialism cybernetic socialism and transhumanism are sort of i think fairly related in fairly direct ways but, you know, it's also like, you know, death is also one of aging is also one of those physical. So if it's not one for one, do they have a primary place in the spirit's interpretation of itself in the world? Like what is the how ought that look or, or how weighted is that? I mean. So I'm not going to venture to give like early Marx's answer because I don't understand or like late Marx at all. And then like early Marx, like is extremely difficult to understand. I don't really know what he's saying, but I feel like my answer would be that like one relates to one's body as like an artist relates to like one's materials. Like they constrain. And I mean, this is part of like maybe my dissertation project. If I ever actually write my dissertation, like mounting arguments for this sort of idea. Um, but I mean, the materials that you're working with as an artist constrain you know, I guess in my case, the English language, uh, which Henry Green called the greatest symphony in the world to conduct or something like that. But like <laughs> it, that constrains, uh, which a beautiful line, love Henry Green, that constrains like what it is that you produce. Um, and because you want to create something good aesthetically, you're sort of working with the materials that you have uh, at, at our present stage of like technological development. 
Um, and like sort of what it makes sense to make is also like relative to our stage of development because, you know, just rewriting Ulysses now is like no longer really an option. Like that would be like a derivative artwork at this stage in our technological development or something. So, I, I mean, I think that there, there are constraints imposed by the body, but those are ever changing sort of depending on like our ability to intervene technologically into the body. And they relate differently maybe to like the artwork that one like wants to produce like if one has like red paint that is a constraint of a kind but there's like lots of things that you could do with like red paint when nascent yeah but i think art is the closest we get you know art is the demiurge art is the closest we get to being godlike so it's interesting other than maybe creating children those are the two <laughs> the two closest <laughs> um, philosophy, as plato would say giving birth to ideas yeah. Does Plato say that? That that's uh Yeah, in the, in the symposium he says that like I do not endorse this view, let me say that clearly. He mm. says that like he thinks that having physical children is like the lowest expression of like <laughs> the highest human urge, which is like as you move up the team's <laughs> ladder and you like access the form of the beautiful and like more and more unmediated forms, eventually you realize that what you want to beget is like ideas with eternal existence. This is uh, such a Greek way of looking at <laughs> You know, do you know uh, Rav uh, Joseph Soloveitchik? I've mentioned him on the podcast mm -hmm. before. He's a, a great, um, great uh, rabbinic scholar um, and uh, sort of the, the founder of a school. His son, son-in-law, great. You know, it's like a, a a rabbinic line, and he was like the original. I think he was the original Rav Joseph Soloveitchik. Anyway, he's always. Um, defining Judaism and explaining Judaism in his Chumash and his commentaries to the Torah in contrapoint, contrast to the Greeks, you know? And so the Greeks are aesthetic creatures. Jews are ethical creatures. Not not uh, this Jew. I'm an aesthetic yes, creature. Yes, of course, of course. I, this, I, this, I've heard this before. And um, I have my own proclivity for aesthetics, but he has a very sophisticated... It's a, it's a sophisticated form of this argument and uh, and a fascinating one. And one of the ways he roots it is in um, the idea of what the fundamental unit of um, social life is. And for Jews, it, it, this is not just Soloveitchik saying this. I think you can trace it pretty clearly in the Bible. It's the family, right? Like, Abraham is the first Jew because he's the he's the father of the Jewish people, uh, Avram Malkinu, and um, and it's um, oh no, wait, is that that would be Abraham our king? But anyway, um, it, it is uh, like it, it's a conception of what the um, basis of social and ethical life is that is I, I think to your point and like and in ways that can feel very limiting and restricting anti-aesthetic in some fundamental ways anti-artistic for that anti-numinal you know like it's a a very earthy rooted constraining you know, within that constraint, there's much to be offered, I think, but it's not for nothing that he makes this distinction and that it's a distinction between the sort of 
aesthetic intellectualism of the Greeks, which is, you know, um, for him, uh, like a lower form of existence. But whether you accept his ordering of that or not, the contrast is interesting and real in a sense. There is a tension. There is a tension between the... Um, the familial and the artistic that plays out in any number of different ways. I wonder if Hegel might synthesize these, uh, because I mean, I think I'm probably of course Hegel's he would another, synthesizes <laughs> it all. Yeah. Another person who like, I'm never clear what he's saying, but like I, I think that part of Hegel's like interest in the aesthetic comes from his sense that objectifying one's inner spiritual life is like how one achieves recognition and so on like one reading of hegel like maybe the aesthetic is like the means to the ethical and of course hegel is like a huge proponent of like the bourgeois like nuclear family yeah. uh like he thinks that that's like one of the essential components of like zitlikite which is like often translated as like ethical life um but so that might be a way of like synthesizing these two these two notions is that like in order to participate in social life, like you need democratic control, not only over the organization of society, but over sort of the, the terms on which like you are recognized socially. Um, and that's something like what appeals to me so much about this book, despite like all of the bits of it that are like completely crazy is that it does seem to me that that's something that's been like fundamentally denied to women. Mm -hmm. um, in, in many yeah, ways. For, not, yeah. Like democratic Spencer, control yeah. over the way in which they're socially recognized. And like part of that is that like their bodies have been conscripted to do things that maybe they don't always like. I also think that a huge part of this has to do with the sort of aestheticization yeah. that she talks about when she talks about like the model and how wood in the model's images is like women have historically not had very much control over um, how they externalize their inner life because mm -hmm. there's been like one aesthetic model, like very constraining aesthetic model to which they must like conform. Yeah. She talks too about the the, the 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 way in which like our notion of of even like beauty is such a pale thing in this. Uh, I mean, I, I already read that one passage, but there's there's another bit where she's talking about how like we have this exclusive beauty ideal, right? And the whole point of it is like it serves a clear political function. Someone, most women, will be left out, and then you have this situation where like people then try and court like conform themselves to this standard and thus women become more and more look alike, but at the same time they're expected to express their individuality through their physical appearance. Um, and yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, like that's so obviously true. Um, and you know, like Instagram, it feels like it's just like this, like, you know, uh, revolving, you know, proof of, uh, of that particular, um, you know, distorted relationship to, to, to beauty and femininity and, and idealization. The, you know, yeah. so there's a section, sorry, sorry. I just want to say there's a section at the end of this, right. And I'm going to pull it up in a moment where um, she outlines some of the conditions for what the, the society she is trying to call into being. Yeah. We should like. talk about that very quickly. And I, I wonder, like, you know, I'm thinking about what you just said, Becca, about the ways in which um, the conditions that Firestone was writing under were, are still extant for women. To what extent um, this is the same, to what extent it's different, and insofar as it's different, whether it's better or worse. And 
I noticed that a number of the things she called for, I don't have my copy, I have to close it somehow, I have to pull it up in front of me, but without quoting, I remember clearly the first thing she lists in this list of conditions is what she calls, is it single occupations? Single professions. Single professions. Yeah, yeah. The old, single professions. The old single roles such Not as a celibate religious yeah. life, court roles, jester, musician, page, knight, and loyal squire, cowboys, sailors, firemen, cross-country truck drivers, detectives, pilots, had a prestige all their own. There was no stigma attached to being professionally single. Uh, si- single. Unfortunately, these roles seldom were open to women. But she also says this is a traditional solution. She's like, this might be an appealing solution for many individuals, especially in the transitional period as we transition to like the household structure. Yeah. But that does seem to be where we're at in the dialectic. Right. I was about to say, maybe we're in that transitional period because professional class jobs in particular. Now it's interesting what she, she's listing as the classical male single professions, whatever it was, pilot, what was it, rodeo clown? Cowboy. Uh, detective? Yeah, cowboy. I be a detective. Detective. Detective is even awesome. But these are, you know, very sort of outre on the margins, uh, specialized forms of work. But, you know, it seems like half of the, you know, campus culture, campus culture, not like a university culture, but like Silicon Valley, like, where like your company provides a campus that you, yeah. well, these are all professions as are, you know, some graphic designer or whatever, marketing this or that, whatever. These are all professions that not only cater to singles, um, but that seem to reproduce a form of not just professional, but cultural singledom that is very useful to the economy you know, to this kind of professional class yeah. economy, because it means people with fewer attachments who have fewer reasons to not be available to do work at 9 p.m. or, or whatever else. Uh, so it feels like it's it was striking to me. I bring it up not just to say like, ah, she was a prophet or whatever. Or we're in the transitional period because I, I don't know that that's exactly right. But what was most striking to me was to see that presented as a a plank of a revolutionary program, like on the path to something. Yeah. This thing that to me seems like the most like status quo possible formulation to consider that at one time maybe yeah. that seemed genuinely radical. But I mean, so but, but part of it is that she just she doesn't really see any value in having kids, right? Like at one point she's like, "Ah, maybe people feel a genuine desire for kids, but even if they do, it's probably bad. Like, you know, the, 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 they're going to damage their kid and, and, and damage the, um, like the, either the kid's going to be destroyed or the parents are going to be destroyed because it's like, yeah, we could read that. She says, doesn't everyone want children at some time in their lives? There is no denying that people now feel a genuine desire to have children, but we don't know how much of this is the product of an authentic liking for children and how much <coughs> of other deeds. Yeah, it is. We've seen like, that satisfaction, blah blah blah. And then she goes, it's like some like Freudian like gobbledygook about like egos, right? And, stuff. and so it's like, well, yeah, like that's obviously not that important, but like maybe you know, being like an esteemed cross country truck driver or detective, you know, will be more meaningful. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, man. Like, you know, I. There, there is a bit of this, which is, and I, I think about this in terms of my own life. Like, 
there are, let's say like extraordinary pleasures and ordinary pleasures, right? And the, the sort of logic of capitalism that she's critiquing when it comes to beauty, right? Where it's like, you know, the, the extraordinary pleasure. I feel like we, we sort of like internalize that. We're like having kids is an ordinary pleasure. It is it's just like, it's, it's, it's also labor and hard and like, um, but instead it's like, you know, being like a cowboy or a fireman or, or, or any of these other professions, you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm like a working writer, you know, I've, I've published a bunch of books. I've had, I've had a claim. I've also have kids, you know, and like, it's not like the, the writing aspect of my life is the meaningful aspect of my life. Right. I mean, the most meaningful aspect of my life is the family life, is the attachment to kids. And, um, and yet I think that we feel like it can't be the more valuable thing than like winning the national book award because everybody can get it, but it is. I mean, I don't know that it always is for everybody. I mean, no, it's not for everybody, really but, but it, yeah. but it is for lots of people. Right. Um, and it certainly is for me. And I do think also that there's some of the aspects of, 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 of like the family structure that she attacks poison that for men and women, right? Like, you know, I do a lot of what would be sort of like have been like the more traditional um, uh, like women's roles in, in my household, right? Because I have a more flexible job, uh, you know, make breakfast in the morning, drop the kids off, pick the kids up, take them to, you know, doctor's appointments for the most part um, and, uh, and so on, right? Uh, uh, you know, make sure their homework's done uh, by the time Jessica gets back from work, right? Um, and in a prior model of, you know, <coughs> gender role division where the different tasks that we would have to do would be delineated by, by gender role, I feel like that would, that would sort of introduce like a poison into the heart of, into the heart of like family life and into your ability to actually really like enjoy, um, this kind of really amazing thing, which is, which is like child rearing, right? Amazing and also very difficult. Uh, and so I, I think that there's, there's a lot that she says it's right. And especially, you know, we talked about how a lot of her historical analysis is like a little bit too much, right? But there's often a grain of a lot of truth in it. Um, and certainly the way that the family structure that she's talking about in like, what is this, 1971, where it seemed, you know, where people think... Yeah, like, it's like, oh, well, this is like the natural thing. It's like, there's nothing natural about the way that like the American family existed in 1971, right? That's not, you know, that's not, you know, the way that we naturally are and thus must be because as Jordan Peterson says, like lobsters have hierarchy or whatever. The Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. There's something natural about women being, uh, uh, getting pregnant and raising children. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So you can you can take this too far. That's finally sure. what she's objecting to. Right. Right. She's not only objecting to the false uh, naturalism yeah. imposed on top. She is objecting to the family, yeah. the nuclear family itself, whatever you want to call it. She's objecting to the essential bond between mother and child. 
because rightly she understands that you can't like completely remake everything so long as that pre- you can't completely remake everything in a Marxian yeah. gender revolution so long as that persists. And she doesn't want explicitly rejects the same way Leninists explicitly rejected like social democratic reformism, right? In the same way that revolutionary Leninists said, hey, gradual improvements in the conditions of the working class is literally the worst thing that could happen Mm -hmm. because insofar as we win, those gradual improvements are won, they will sap the energy for true revolution. It seems to me that part of Firestone is saying it's not any effort toward sort of moderate redistribution of labor between the sexes insofar as it preserves the underlying naturalistic biological maternal child connection and and uh, male uh, sort of you know workplace role is is bad it's is counter revolutionary because it is finally like not just a critique it's as the part we're reading makes very clear it's an explicitly you know revolutionary program yep. um I think that that's the part that I think is just, like, mistaken. Like, I mean, I do think that the, you know, giving birth to a child physically is, like, significant, horrifying, body horror ordeal kind of thing. But I think that it's just not true that if all of the other sort of accoutrements of the distribution of, like, the benefits and burdens of that were completely changed, that the mere fact of, like, women giving birth to children uh, would entail, like, hierarchy of, of this kind. Hmm. Like, I think that she really understates, like, how radical, like, reimagining, the, like, the division of labor and stuff could be. And I think one thing that's kind of disappointing about some of her, like, proposed solutions is that at the beginning I was like, we can sort of slot what she's saying into, like, early Marx and that, like, works really well. By the end, like, I feel like early Marx has really fallen out of it. So, like, early Marx would not endorse this, like, single profession thing because, like, early Marx would say that, like, you know, you're alienated from your labor insofar as, like, you're not setting the agenda. Like, you're not deciding, like, what it is that you're producing and, like, the products of what you're producing are being appropriated by the capitalist. And how well that translates to, like, the service economy is, like, an open question, even though I think that it probably – there's probably some way in which people in the service economy can still be alienated. But, like, he would say that, like, the problem is that – those things are not like ultimately like fulfilling professions and stuff. So like kind of in, I, I imagine that what he has in mind is kind of like everybody is like Phil, like everybody is kind of like setting their hours, like mm-hmm. doing work that appeals to them or whatever. And, and, and doing work that they find like meaningful. That's like, in fact, it's like the externalization of their interior life. And so it's like a precondition for their like recognition in the social world. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being like very divergent from like a lot of the, like in, in some way, even though this book is quite radical, by the time that I got to the end and I see her concrete proposals, I'm like, these are all like quite mild, actually. Like, shouldn't you be calling for sort of just like the, I don't know, the overhaul of like everything? Like, you shouldn't be saying like women should be detectives. You should be saying like <laughs> that <laughs> is the means of production, like everybody or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, she does say everyone should live in like polycules and all that. And like that, and that is a little more radical than I guess the transitional phase. Cause she also says like people will be live. The second item on the list is like living together, which is like you live with people that you're not like married. In the household. Yeah. Yeah. And like a bohemian way. But she does and then that's like before households. It's like first you're just like having like a like unmarried like cohabitation. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Cohabitation. Yeah. Right, right. Also, also not like a radical step for us. And I'm like, Real, in some way, it like shows how regressive like things even in the seventies were mm-hmm. that these seemed like radical steps. On the other hand, it kind of seems like had she hewed more closely to what I thought she was going to do in the original chapter, where it had like more of an explicitly Marxist flavor, I think she would have ended up with like some more radical proposals than basically like, and now women can also like join the PNC, which is like, <laughs> yeah. Should should we move to the the art? Yeah. <laughs> The art is the body itself. Yeah. So. No, I saved. I, I had thoughts that I I did not voice in the Firestone segment because I thought, you know what? These actually make more sense. Um, it's interesting you said that um, this was not representative of the novel, Becca. The portion that we read, which was excerpted in. Uh, so this is now the Sheila Hetty novel. Uh, Motherhood. Which is called Motherhood. But the part we read uh, ran in N plus one. It's an excerpt under the title, That Longing for a Holy Completeness. And um, I was imagining as I was reading it, like I, it, it made me curious in a good way about what the novel length version of this would be because I was definitely held within the character's dilemma for the length of that excerpt, like I found myself in like a close relationship. I felt like to her own thinking and emotional process as she was going back and forth on this question of motherhood and whether, whether she wants to be a mother, whether she can avoid, whether she has any choice in whether or yeah. not she wants to be a mother. Um, you know, her body whether, is of her right, in a way yeah. that, like, right, I mean, right. Firestone's point in a way because like she's kind of like my body has its own demands like maybe it'll just do this without me <laughs> Becca do you want to set up the novel and sort of you know what it is and then and then what this particular excerpt is yeah so I mean I really like Sheila Hetty I recommend this novel and like also her other work she's one of the most interesting contemporary novelists mm-hmm. and definitely the most worth reading of the people who write autofiction, in my opinion. So, like, who else, sorry to cut you off. Who else is on that list quickly? I was wondering. Garth Greenwell whatever, is like, incredible. Okay. Yeah, he's really good, actually. So that's true. Um, ben Lerner, whose first two books I liked a lot, but then his third book I like really didn't like. Now Scarred. Tao Lin. I mean, he's good, actually. Actually, you know, there's a lot of them who are good, but Sheila Tao Lin is considered uh, autofiction? Yeah, I think okay. I think so. Yeah. I, was, um, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I, I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were saying, um, I mean, that was all introductory preamble, kind of irrelevant to this particular book. So the book is about like her trying to decide whether she wants to have a child, and like the conceit of the book is that she does a series. She asks. It's so weird that like only Sheila Hetty could conceive of it, and it's something that doesn't sound like it would work as a structuring device for a novel, and yet it works brilliantly. But the conceit of the novel is she has a coin and she just keeps asking the coin questions and then flipping the coin, like where it's like heads is yes and uh, tails is no or something. And so she'll be like, you know, like, 
will having a child fulfill me? And she'll flip the coin and the coin will be like, yes. And she's like, will it prevent me from like achieving like my artistic uh, destiny? And the coin will be like, yes. And she'll be like, so should I have a kid? And the coin will be like, no, and she, you know, like whatever. So it it is all um, like sort of fragmentary in the vein of the thing that we read, uh, the M plus one excerpt that we read. I think James Wood says that she writes SAS, which I think is like a good term. Um so it's sort of like a series of personal reflections guided by her interrogation of this coin. Um, interesting. Formal device. Yeah. For what it's worth, Phil, Philip K. Dick claimed that he wrote, well, I don't say claimed, I don't doubt him. Philip K. Dick wrote The Man in the High Castle. Man in the High Castle, using the I Ching. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly, it's, similar, exactly. it's not similar at all because it's like a completely different kind of book, but it is kind of. <laughs> the, the vibe is, I gotta say, like <laughs> the Phil Dick, Sheila Hetty is very much an argument for the existence of gender roles because they are all the way on other sides of these. <laughs> I, wish, I wish the two genders were Sheila Hetty and Philip K. Dick. In a better world, in a better world. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I liked that structure. Again, I wonder how I would feel about it at novel length, and I'm sure it would unfold in, in, uh, ways that aren't revealed, you know, plot wise and also sort of, um, like voice and pacing wise that aren't necessarily evident in this excerpt, but I liked it in the excerpt length and her reasons for wanting to have the kid as she goes back and forth, start with her, is it boyfriend or husband? I think boyfriend. Boyfriend. Um, it doesn't, so Yeah, she goes through all of these different reasons, right? Or impulses, right? And that she has a somewhat, sometimes she has a more distanced um, relationship to it. Like we're talking about like the body, right? It's like, this is the impulse maybe pushing me to have a kid. I don't know how I feel about the fact that like it exists, right? There's a, there's a, um, you know, there's a bit where she talks about how like when they're having sex, she's like urging him, you know, she, she like is, is, is thinking of him like coming inside of her, right? And how previously like fantasies of domination had been what did it for her. And now it's like the idea of, of, uh, having. Yeah, having child like I used to want to be sexually dominated him but lately I don't if I have a baby if I had a baby I'd be dominated by the needs of the baby I don't fantasize about being dominated by the needs of a baby but I still <laughs> imagine him coming to me right um, but the, in addition to these reasons that she's going through she the, the excerpt begins with sort of what's at stake right which is the question of her art and maybe you should just read the um, the opening there's a part of me that isn't taking any of this writing seriously because there's a man in the next room sleeping. Something about him being there suspends me above all this writing because I'm getting something from him. I don't feel like searching for answers. Did my words protect me before, whereas I have no need of their protection now? Were they how I comforted myself before, while I have less need of their comfort now? Do I no longer need to structure the chaos, for love not only structures it, but gives meaning to everything else? Since returning home, I've been feeling that urge, that longing for a holy completeness in the form of a child. Yeah, it's funny because this is so not how I feel about 
like being married. And I guess this is why I have trouble seeing a dichotomy, at least between the kind of work that I do and like giving birth to a child is like, I feel like the two things just kind of like enhance each other. Yeah, they're just totally like, different things. But you know, I don't, but you know Richard Ford. Well, it's, 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 to me, they're not different. It's just like my, I have like a very intellectual marriage where like doing philosophy is very continuous with just like arguing with my husband mm -hmm. about whether like Rawls is right or like whatever. And I, <laughs> I just don't feel, I don't, I don't feel that my like desire to, do intellectual work is like diminished at all by like his presence in my life. I feel it's like he's sort of a, I don't know. And he, he, he makes me more curious about things yeah, in the same way that like I imagine, like because philosophy is like, it's weird to call it like a job. It's kind of like, it's a calling. It can be brought to bear on mm -hmm. like everything. Like I'm sure that I would relate philosophically like to the process of having a child. And so like, although I really like this, this book and many parts of it I found quote unquote relatable, a horrible word. This part I found quite unrelatable yeah. you, because you know, there's it's interesting because this this kind of division, it's not just among women. Uh, I, I worked as a research assistant for Richard Ford on his book Canada, which I think is a great book. Um, and uh, he told me if I wanted to be a writer to not have children, right? Um, advice I did not follow. Which was a classic view, right? Absolutely, like, uh, yeah. And yeah. it's funny, I was talking with a friend of mine, Matt Thomas, who wrote a really wonderful novel called We Are Not Ourselves. And, and I told him that Richard Ford had, had told me that. And he just started laughing. He's like, if you're an artist, why on earth would you cut yourself off from one of the like most basic and monumental human experiences that of having kids, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, like how... How on earth would that be good for your your art? I mean, like, yes, it will it will cut into your time, but like, it just you know. Doesn't obviate the urge. I mean, of course, I don't have kids, so maybe I'll have kids, and I'll be like, okay, now I'm done. Don't want to read anymore. Like, hate hate literacy. Bye. But I like I, I doubt it. You know what I mean? Like, I at least being married, I have not felt that any of my desire to like write or think about things is like undercut at all. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't find, look, I still write. I have two kids and I'm employed as a writer, but I relate to this more than the two of you, so I, I guess. I, because... I relate to this line. Do I no longer need to structure the chaos? For love not only structures it, but gives meaning to everything else. It's like, yeah, I relate to that. Yeah, that's, I relate to that. And I, and I think if you sort of, like, if you take, that sentiment and you broaden it out a bit and if you had conditioned yourself to think of writing and intellectual work as requiring a state of agitation and restless dissatisfaction to some extent which I certainly had for much of my life if things feel to um not if things feel too orderly in the sense of like, uh, if the external world feels too orderly, but like if your ego feels too uh, resolved and in its proper place, um, that potentially, you know, you worry about, I mean, I, I worried about it. I ended up being wrong. It didn't, I think if anything, I'm a much better writer now than I was when I felt that way, but the writing is different to be sure. N not for you, you've done radically downhill. It's horrible. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, uh, this, uh, betrays your own lack of taste and sophistication. Though. I'm the best. Um, but I, I thought like when I quit smoking, 
I was like, I'll never be able to write anymore. How will I possibly be able to quit smoking? Because I understood in the Hegelian sense, which I, I'm using the word, so I might be using it totally wrong. I'm going to use it without really understanding oh, no, exactly what I mean. What I mean but, right. <laughs> like the cigarettes were some kind of externalization of my internal state, you know, as I felt them to be. And I was like, without that, without that way of like mediating between myself and the, I won't be able to write. It'll just, I'll like, I'll become, you know, I'll dry up basically. That's how I felt. Um, I think that's kind of like a false conception, at least in my case, that's a false conception of what is required for writing. I mean, cause like, I guess I also, you know, in my wild and reprobate youth, like I had a period of like, I lived in Berlin, I'm like doing tons of drugs and like, this is what a writer does, right? But like, actually, like you're not writing a lot when you're like doing tons of drugs, like all the time, like I wasn't yeah. writing a lot. Like it, it's, I, yeah, I write yeah. more now that I have like, all right, I have like a routine. I wake up every day, I like do my reading, yeah. my writing. Like it, do, it doesn't seem spiritual turmoil is like is actually necessary for sort of like maybe like curiosity or something yeah that sort of fetish of like the 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 tortured artist or also like the asshole artist where it's like being like a giant jerk is somehow supposed to be good for your art or um you know like charlie parker did heroin so maybe being a junkie is good for your jazz like it just you know it's not it's not like just because Hemingway was a horrible human being and a beautiful writer, it's, it's they're not necessarily connected, I don't think. Um, and that like psychic disturbance, um, like there are writers. I mean, I will say like the sense that something's wrong or disordered or like me not being at peace with something is 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 related to, to things that drive me to write, right? Where you try and write into those gaps. Um, but I think that the the world provides more than enough of those. Yeah, that's exactly, like, I can't imagine a situation in which I'm not, like, constantly confronted by things that I'm like, wow, that's so incredibly wrong and, and terrible. <laughs> like, just, I, I don't think that having a child will change that for yeah. me. <laughs> so should we go down to, like, yeah, some of the, yeah. the, 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 like, and she begins with, in terms of the reasons and, and impulses, right? Like she begins with with the sacred, right? Like that longing for a holy completeness in the form of a child, um, which is a lovely line. And, it is a lovely line. Um, and then she follows that, uh, you know, and like later she's like, what to make of God's two faces, the all accepting and loving New Testament ovulating God and the vindictive and rageful Old Testament PMS God, how to reconcile the two within yeah, my own body. <laughs> Although the Old Testament okay. God is definitely like an ovulating God. I mean, like the amount of the Old Testament that's about like the next generations and your seed. And like, I think we've already talked about like the section. Everyone begetting everybody. Yeah, the begetting and like Job, like God's first answer to Job is like, like you're, you're complaining about the universe. Let me just explain animals giving birth for like pages of beautiful poetry. Right. Um, and, and then that's followed by like the sort of sense of 
the, these gender roles that we're talking about, like part of me feels I'm not a real enough woman to pull it off the making of a child. You know, it's like, like men go to war and that's what makes them a man and women have babies and that's what makes that makes them a woman. And it's just sort of like, um, you know, kind of bind that she feels herself in, uh, in Sally Rooney. She's like a craving for androgyny, which I, part, part of that I really liked about Firestone that we didn't touch on is her sense that sort of like all great artists are like, and all great like cultural products are like fundamentally androgynous, which I love. There's like a, there's a line in Colette about like hermaphrodites and hermaphrodism being like important to art in the pure and impure, which like I love. And she had, kind of gets at this in the part of this excerpt where she talks about how, she wants a girlfriend. Like part, she, she wonders if what she actually wants is like right. basically to be in like a throuple with the woman, so that she has like a masculine and like feminine element like in her relationship. She says, "When I think about what I really want, it is a girlfriend for me and Miles, who is her boyfriend. I want a girlfriend around to balance out the masculine he brings with something more feminine, so our home is more balanced in my life too." Blah blah blah. The one time Miles and I had a threesome with a female friend, I felt this is heaven. It's like more religious language. This is everything I've ever wanted in my life. This satisfies every last part of me. So it seems like the desire for holy oneness or holy completeness could also be satisfied maybe by like the elimination of gender roles for her, or sort of like by like hermaphrodism <laughs> of some kind. <laughs> to return to an earlier point, I, okay. I completely understand what you're saying about the hermaphrodism as being a kind of a central element of great art. The, I'm going to find being, this collect quote. Yeah, please do. But that requires difference, right? Like the frisson of that or the union of that or whatever the generative aspect of that ceases to exist, ceases to be generative if it, there's not that difference to play on. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, listen, I'll give the cynical interpretation of that passage. Cause I had thought about that. So if I understand this correctly, like one could see it as her agonizing over motherhood and her sort of, um, boyfriend's, uh, role in relation to this which uh, seems to be to kind of go along with it, like also yields uh, like sexual fantasies for the two of them in the bedroom that you could say are about fulfilling the feminine side of her. But there is a, there's an interesting side effect, which is like, you know, um, you know, threesomes for the boyfriend who doesn't have to deal with kids or those kind of child rearing right. responsibilities. Who, who the novel, like, like uh, he isn't interested and he seems to be trying to like sabotage it. Uh, this, this desire, um, like he describes, you know, the sort of prestige that, that, that mothers have. And he says, I don't see why it's supposed to be so virtuous to do work that you created for yourself. It's like someone who digs a big hole in the middle of a busy intersection and then starts filling it up again and proclaims filling up this hole is the most important thing in the world I could be doing right now. And then at another point, yeah, he doesn't want a child. And the, like, that's like, it happens often throughout the book that yeah. like, she kind of, she initially like didn't want one. And then she's like waffling. Yeah. And that's like what happens in the book. And he's like, not into it. Yeah. He says, he tells her <laughs> one can either be a great artist and a mediocre parent or the reverse, but not great at both, you know, which is like, 
fairly obviously trying to tip the scales. But a classic way of looking at it, yep. right, as mm-hmm. we just discussed. And um, if you see art and radical selfishness, which is not like a crazy way to look at it, um, you know, not ultimately the only way, not for me, not the true way, but not a crazy way to look at it. Um, you can see, you can see where, where and, and I haven't read that. I mean, I'm sort of cheating here because I read something about the novel without having read the full novel other than this excerpt. So I know where she winds up in this um, in this decision. And I'll just say so as to not um, put any spoilers in here. Though usually we don't care about spoilers. I think we should talk about spoilers because the, the important weird experimental. It's like not. It's not okay. like a plotted novel yeah. primarily. I think we should talk about this. So yes. would it be fair to say that she decides not to have a child, and that decision is rooted in her commitment to making art? Yes, I mean, I think her whole posture is like. I mean, she's been read as a. I think she's been read wrong by lots of people. And like, I wrote a piece about her latest book, mm-hmm. which is called Pure Color, in which I argue that basically like she's like an athlete, like she, yeah. that all of her books, like not arguments for like aesthetics, like over everything. Which, I like, want I'm to make a child that. that will not die, a body that will speak and keep on speaking, which can't be shot or burned up. Yeah, this is the concern. I mean, there's an interesting essay to be written about this, which I like touch on in the thing mm-hmm. I wrote, but I couldn't fully get into where like the concern of like her latest novel is kind of like, what is the purpose of like art without humanity? And so like, should we prioritize like the production of people mm-hmm. over the production of art? Because like people are pre- preconditioned for like the meaningfulness of art. Like that's kind of, I mean, most people would reject that as a justification for like caring about people, but like it resonates with me. Um, and she says repeatedly in that book, sort of like, it's like, or maybe it is in motherhood. And one of the two, she says something about how, you know, like a child can die, a child can get tuberculosis, mm-hmm. they can get sick, they can't, they can't get tuberculosis. I think that is what she actually says, though. They get um, sick all like the art, time. Art can't die, like art isn't fragile. Um, not that I, I mean, who knows if that's a good argument, but. Yeah, I mean, it just, it that. seems to be, you know, it's funny. So uh, I know you love S- Sally Rooney so much, Becca. Love her, yeah. favorite. <laughs> um, uh, not, not really. Um, but uh, she reviewed this. Uh, this book, and she is talking about how, um, so in in Hetty writes, I know a woman who refuses to mother, refuses to do the most important thing, and therefore becomes the least important woman, yet the mothers aren't important either, none of us are important. And then Rooney writes, refusing to participate in motherhood shuts a woman out of the universal story, removes her from the main activity of a woman's life, but raising a child turns a woman into a mother whose defining activity for the rest of her life is mothering. This is the double bind heady to sex, to be childless and therefore less important than a mother, or to be a mother and therefore less important than one's children. Um, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily... I find this relatable. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that formulation necessarily. Um, that although I will say, as a father, that sense of being less important than your children is something that I feel um, and actually rather like. Uh, it's it's like you, your your relationship to yourself as an individual, or at least I found this changes dramatically. Um, 
But it kind of goes in both directions, yeah. right? Because you feel less important than your children, but more important because of your children. Have you so, have you ever heard the? There's a song, uh, "Pregnant Women Are Smug." By yes, no. I have heard that yes. song by what? What are, what are they called? Hale and Oates. Uh, uh, no, no. Um, I, Garfunkel and Oates. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love. I mean, that seems that seems true. Yeah. <laughs> My lemon experience of pregnant women. You're just giving birth now. You're not Mother Earth now. Oh my gosh, I have so much going on. I got my novel published. I moved. I got married. Gosh, you know everything seems so trivial now that I'm pregnant. Well, I also have end gang violence in Mexico, and I you really know, I can't even really remember what I did before I was pregnant. Everything just seems so meaningless. I'm sure if I get pregnant, I'll be smug. Yeah, and I mean, I do yeah, think yeah, go ahead. <laughs> something different at stake uh, in being subordinated to your children as like a female person, yep. mm-hmm. uh, not like in a in a in a world. I mean, this is a one further way in which like gender norms harm us all yep. or whatever. Because in like a gender neutral world, I would not have a problem right. with that. But like in our world, I do feel that like I struggle and have struggled in like male dominated spaces to be yep. like taken seriously. Mm-hmm formidable intellectual opponent and i do think that one way in which like women are dismissed is like you know basically by being relegated to sort of like an unintellectual like caretaking role whether the caretaking role really is unintellectual is is an is an open question but that is like a way in which i think women are dismissed um and that's just one of many ways i mean there's there's other ways in which like women are dismissed but that i do i do feel that i would have to like contend with that you know we have a mutual friend who you would have to contend with that if you chose to have kids, it would make it harder to be taken seriously as an intellectual. Yeah, I, I mean, I, not by like reasonable, sensible people, but like by sexist people well, and like so, such people and, exist. And this is not just this is not just people are going to judge you because you're a woman. No, 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 but, J- but Jake, Jake, I think so. Beck- I don't think that's true. I think that the more that no. you manage to identify with the masculine mm-hmm. ideal, like in a way, you're failing because you're failing yeah. at being a woman, and people will remind you of that. But also, like you're at least succeeding at like satisfying the intellectual ideal. And so, mm-hmm. I think this is this is like I have this pet theory that like the more. Um, I don't know that women like over feminize to like compensate when they're in like intellectual roles, mm-hmm. sort of as like an apology for it. Um, I like, I mean, I have been told by people basically that there's some kind of like trade off. Like, people have said like things to me, like, you have like a masculine essence because you're like good at philosophy. Obviously, this is not like the mainstream mm-hmm. position, it's not a position held mm-hmm. by people that I like respect, but I think it is a true thing. So, I think that the, the it can be discrediting, and that's a consideration that I wish weren't salient so but like in this world it is. becca you and i have a mutual friend who has stories about uh interviewing for philosophy jobs while visibly pregnant right and the kind of like insane comments she got from men and women right basically about how like it's bad that she's pregnant if she wants to be a philosopher um yeah which is crazy yeah so it, i mean it definitely it definitely is like when I talk about that sense of being less important than my children, it is like, it is a personal sense, which is different from like a highly gendered social role being projected upon me. And that's a huge difference. I, I think that that um, would be very difficult. And I it, it could be easy, let us say. There is a cultural argument, right, that... The simple way to reconcile this is to stop caring about your um, job and um, and like accept that motherhood is the the highest achievement and 
Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think like, I, I wouldn't respect anybody who is making that argument. I don't think that that's a serious argument insofar as whatever it's other defects, like it just fails to take seriously human beings. And, um, having to choose between a an appearance of seriousness and um, being a parent is a, like an awful choice to have to make and not one I would shrug off since like I want I sure as hell want to project something when I walk into a room I'm not I'm not unaware of that I'm not uh, I, I've I know what I want to project when I walk into a room as relates to being a writer and, and maybe even as relates to being a parent. Um, that being said, but what are you trying to project with your shirt unbuttoned enough to show your chest hair? It's very hot. in uh, My apartment. Um, it's not just like serious, no, seriousness though. I feel like because for me, like intellectualism is a very important like part of my identity sure. and it's like not a job. It does feel like something like recognition, like to yeah. be recognized as just like an intrinsically thinking being with like a seat at the table feels like that is at the core of uh, yeah. someone recognizing me in a way that like takes my dignity into account. Yeah. And so while I probably will, you know, probably like someone who would not treat me that way because I had a child is like not worth my time. And so like, I yeah. probably won't like cede to, to the world that that kind of person has created. The fact that it's a consideration is like another casualty of the yeah. gender system. As it I, yeah. I think it's unfortunate and, and a legitimate injustice uh, insofar as that kind of social prejudice is, you know, a, a political injustice also. And I'm saying like, I don't, I, I don't dismiss it. I, when, when I say appearances, I mean in terms of like prestige and how you're sort of received by other people and your ability to function at the level you want to function at. Like, I mean to say that, um, that yeah, I, I, I get that. And it, um, But uh, like, I don't know, compared to what? Uh, I mean, I guess my answer would be that that just seems uh, unfortunate, but surmountable in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been 70 years ago, but is now. And insofar as it's surmountable, for most people, it's worth surmounting because the rewards are sufficient. The thing about like... um, my experience of being a parent is that aside from fulfilling whatever biological imperatives or religious imperatives, um, which I don't, you know, I like, I, I don't think are insignificant. Does the lizard brain it trick is... the body into singing its ancient song? Yeah. 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 Which, that was a great, I thought it was, wasn't it lizard song trick the lizard song? The trick uh, does the lizard brain trick the body into singing its ancient ah, song. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a great line, but uh, but like, it's also as a professional and artist or whatever. I don't know. It's just it's um, it's it's like uh, it's rewarding. It's fun. So, but it's like I want to go back to the point Becca made about recognition. It's good subject matter. Yeah, that Re- Becca made about recognition I, I, because so. Hetty says, you know, I want to make a child that will not die, a body that will speak and keep on speaking, which can't be shot or burned up. But that's 
like even though yet yeah, like people talk about like giving birth to a novel it's not that's not it's, it has nothing to do with a child like a child is a fundamentally different thing art is i mean art is communication right john paul books are thick letters to friends it's 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 like the most rich and um complex and powerful way of like genuinely engaging with other human beings right um but a child is just a fundamentally different thing. There's a bit in, uh, there's a bit of Simone de Beauvoir that I really love where she's talking about, uh, you know, all oppressive regimes become stronger through the degradation of the oppressed. And she's, she's in Algeria, I've seen in any number of colonists appease their conscience by the contempt in which they held the Arabs who were crushed with misery. The more miserable the latter were, the more contemptible they seemed. So, so much so that there was never any room for remorse, Right where you sort of like reduce somebody to just a picture of misery with which you can no longer even sort of recognize or, or attach any fellow feeling to. Yet, with all this sordid resignation, there were children who played and laughed, and their smile exposed the lie of their oppressors. It was an appeal and a promise. It projected a future before the child, a man's future. If, in all oppressed countries, a, face, a child's face is so moving, it's not that the child is more moving or that he has more of a right to happiness than the others. It is that he is the living affirmation of human transcendence. He is on the watch. He is an eager hand held out to the world. He is a hope, a project. The trick of tyrants is to enclose a man in the imminence of his facticity and to try to forget that man is always, as Heidegger puts it, infinitely more than what he would be if he were reduced to being what he is. Man is a being of the distances, a movement toward the future, a project. And Yeah, I love that. That's so good. And I feel like Firestone could be put in similar terms, like the reduction of women to their biological functions mm -hmm. is like a reduction of women to their facticity, yeah. I think would be... And the Warian argument. Yeah. And a novel, however great it is, is like, is, is not doing that. Like it, it's, you know, it, it moves other human beings. Um, uh, but like, I mean, one of the things about children that's so amazing is like, like, it's always changing, right? <laughs> like, cause they, they grow and change and interact with the world differently. And you are interacting with something new and, and it's not just the sort of your change um, reflections of, of yourself and kind of that you get in response to a kid is not, is not just about like your own development in the way that like coming back to a novel is different as you grow older. Like, there's a different human who is moving into the future. And it's just, a, it's just, it, you're in a relationship with that being in just a fundamentally different way. And so, you know, to sort of put art as like being like a child in some way just seems to me like a category error, even though it's a common notion. Yeah. I mean, art is like an expression. I mean, if we take the Hegelian line, like art is an expression of your inner life, objectification mm -hmm. of your inner life or something, that's like a precondition for your like recognition maybe. Um, but obviously a child is not an expression of like your inner life. Like a child is like an independent yeah. being with like its own, its own inner life. Like, I mean, I feel like the conflict between the two is in some ways just like more superficial than it's been framed as. Yeah. Because I think that people do want to say there's like this big metaphysical choice. Like, what is it you want to give birth to? Like words or, mm -hmm. or a person. And I feel like actually the issue is just kind of like, do you have time to do both? Uh, <laughs> Which yeah, is just uh, like more boring question. <laughs> Yeah, the time thing is like it's the 
that seems to me like the crux of it. But, you know, the world needs both. Like uh, the world needs art. The world needs children. Um, and how those things get made seems to be the question. It's a good subject for art these days, though. Is it um, should people continue to have children? Is like, um, you know, I applaud the artist who... Um, who tries to, you know, like imagine that question deeply and, um, and relate some truth in it to people. I think, uh, I haven't read the full novel motherhood, but I would like to. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think it's an a interesting, fruitful thing for an artist to be grappling with extraordinary in historical terms. You know, you think about like Benjamin's Angel of History and like the wreckage is piling up, the wreckage is piling up. And all along, it's like piling up on this, you know, this plateau, this like endless plateau. And then it gets to the cliff and there's like some steep drop off and we're all just like dancing on the edge of the cliff now and the whole time people have been trying to avoid the detritus and just like desperate to stay alive and picking up scraps of animal fat or whatever and now we're just like dancing on the edge of the cliff and like ah should we what what do you think like do we should we exist what's the like um it's pretty wild. It's a, it's a unique in historical terms, certainly. And, and what a wonderful thing for an artist to have some unbelievably dramatic, historically singular um, moment like that. I mean, you know, it seems like a, a rich opportunity. There's not so many. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, neither of these things gave me what I wanted, which was like, I wanted to see someone making like a positive case for having children that didn't presuppose like a lot of the things that I think are like false and that I kind of just reject, mm -hmm. uh, which is fine. But I'm still looking for that. Like I wanted to see someone make an argument for it besides it's like the natural realization of like your feminine identity or something or, or like it is like intrinsically more meaningful than like art making or intellectual activity, which just like. Maybe when I have a child, if I do have a child, I'll believe that. But at this point, I'm just like, no, that nothing's more meaningful than that. So, like, I wanted to see like some other kinds of discussion, um, and these books didn't have it. But that's okay. Keep looking. <laughs> it's good subject matter, you know. Like, forget meaningful is this like, uh, you know, the the big um, metaphysical category, but it's it's interesting, you know. Yes. It's interesting. It makes life interesting in ways that are different than how movies make life interesting. It's a different kind of interesting, but it's like people don't talk enough about how entertaining it is. And um, it's very That's entertaining. It's good. It. Oh, yeah. It's a, a, like the top argument as in a many ways <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Like, you know, it fulfills interesting it's like the highest yeah. you know and it, but um, it also just changed having kids changes your relationship to art because you're reading to them and so you're going through in a very like very granular way like different types of pleasure in art at different times you know like like the, you know like the beauty and playfulness of like the english language right that symphony you know like reading dr seuss to a kid uh, and, and like all the other kind of great children's literature and, and, and the imagery and, and 
sort of different aspects of literature that um, if you approach it with a highly like intellectual, critical um, mind, you know, you sometimes like look at it from a distance. Um, and as the kid develops and develops an appreciation for different things, your relationship to that, I mean, you know, uh, your relationship to it changes. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. I mean, just the novelty of the experience seems to me to be kind of, I mean, probably a horrible, a horrible reason to like have a child, but I'm just like, this seems, seems crazy. <laughs> Growing a, another person in your body. I mean, that seems like good essay fodder, if nothing else, yeah. let's do it. You know, but Maybe. like, I mean, there's, there's a bit where she says like, you know, I don't want to seem ordinary in Miles's eyes. I would rather not have a child than appear that way, you know? And I, you know, read that line. And I immediately thought of the Talks. Frank O'Hara line that we talk about a lot. Like, I want to be at least as alive as the vulgar, you know? <laughs> Where, yeah, so good. You know, it's like, no, it's fine. Like, it's an ordinary pleasure, but it is a truly great one. You know, you want to be at least as alive as the vulgar. <laughs> yeah, you want to be at least as alive as the ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Make art, make babies. Um, Becca, thank you for coming on. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>